Anyway, last week, uh, for those that were here, we looked at the second part of this interlude between the blowing of the sixth and seventh trumpets. And just to remind you that this interlude, as well as the other interlude that we found between the sixth and seventh seal in chapter seven, are points where the focus of John's vision shifts away from the big story of what is happening in the world and onto the ministry and function of his faithful people. In chapter 7, we saw that that ministry was worship, as we read around about the multitude standing around the throne. Whereas here, in this second interlude, the ministry is that of witness, of reaching a world in need of Jesus. So it's worship and then witness. Now, if you come to this church for a while, that should sound a little bit familiar. What are the first two summary statements of our church purpose here at Corringham? Worship and reach. And then the third of our statements is equip, isn't it? Worship, reach and equip. That's what we summarise our church purpose as. The whole purpose of this book is to equip the church to be able to stand firm in the testing times to come. So it's quite good to see that our goals as a church are aligned with God's word, isn't it? And what we saw, particularly last time, is that this witness and testimony um, of the message of the gospel might come at a price. And some would argue that it should come at a price. For John's early readers, their willingness to proclaim the message about this King Jesus in the face of an empire who considered their own king, the emperor, to be a god, was only ever going to invite trouble. And John's warning here is that that trouble is only going to get worse. The persecution that Christians in the first couple of centuries suffered was extreme. And as Tertullian, he was an early church father, as he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was through the faithful, self-sacrificial witness of these early Christians that the church grew at an exponential rate. And it's interesting that the church of Christ grew at its most rapid at a time when the suffering and persecution of his followers was at its greatest. And the same can be said today in the global south where Christian persecution, as we were witnessing on that video to an extent, um, is at its greatest. Christ's church is seeing exponential growth. In the global west, where life is fairly comfortable for the average Christian, it's interesting to see that that growth is relatively flat or even in decline in many places. What does that say to us and our willingness to suffer for the message of the cross? How ready are we to sacrifice or sacrifice of self for the sake of the kingdom? Where do our priorities lie? Seeing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven or in keeping our own lives in the comfort zone? Avoiding the subject of Jesus, of church, of God in our conversations with people, putting our wants and desires before God's purposes and plans. Where is the cost of our discipleship? What chapter 11 tells us is that through sacrifice, even to the point of death, it's through that that the world will come to repentance, first through the death, resurrection and exaltation of his son Jesus, and then through the suffering and even death of his faithful people. This is how God works to bring a broken world back to himself. He doesn't want to work alone, but through each one of us. That was kind of last week. Today we are looking at the last verses of that chapter, verses 15 to 19. And here we see that the interlude is done with, and we return to the sounding of the trumpets. Here at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, we see God claim what is rightfully his. 
Above the high altar in Westminster Abbey are inscribed the words of verse 15 of this chapter from the King James Version. It reads, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. This is the place where kings and queens have been crowned for many years. And this verse serves as a reminder to them that whatever power and authority they currently have is temporary and it's borrowed. True and eternal sovereignty belongs to God. However, do you notice a difference between this version and the one found in probably your Bibles, if you've got an NIV or an ESV, most other translations? Can you see a difference between this and your version? Kingdoms is plural, isn't it? The King James Version pluralises the word kingdom. In the original Greek, the word kingdom should be singular. And that's why the NIV is singular, that's why the ESV and most uh, translations are singular. It should read, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ or Messiah. Why does it matter? Well, what John is revealing here is a universal global vision and the kingdom that God has established through Jesus. is not just a collection of kingdoms ruling over this nation and that, but instead it is his universal rule over the whole of the cosmos, the whole of creation. It is an image of God rightfully claiming back what is his. This is an image of every part of his creation coming back under his authority and rule, not simply the various kingdoms that mankind have created, although they are certainly included amongst it. The Greek word uh, for world used here is cosmos, with a K, and it stems from the the verb cosmeo. That verb means to adorn or to put into order. It refers to something that has been put into order or arranged harmoniously. The cosmos refers to a system that has been put into order, a system where order prevails. What do we read right back at the beginning of Genesis? The earth was without form and void. Before God then looks on everything he has made, and what does he then say? After he's done it all, he sees it is good. Over the course of his creative work, God brings order out of chaos. He establishes the cosmos, a system of beautiful order. From the process of photosynthesis to the water cycle, the progression of the seasons to the perfect axis that our planet sits upon that enables it to sustain life. The synapses of your brain, the beating of your human heart. The beauty of God's created cosmos is astounding and unfathomable. It's why the Apostle Paul says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. It is this, all of this, that verse 15 tells us that God has now reclaimed as his own rightful property. And it is this that it, sorry, it is this that it says he will reign over forever and ever. It is this cosmos that John 3.16 tells us that God loves so much that he gave his only son to redeem. That's the original word they used there for world, cosmos. And it is this same cosmos that is in rebellion against him and under the rule of Satan in John 15, 18 and 12, 31. Through the book of Revelation, we have encountered those who exist within this cosmos. They are either known as those who dwell on the earth and they are those who have rejected God or they are known as the saints, the prophets, the martyrs. They are those who follow the Lamb. Both parties are ultimately responsible for the turning of God's beautifully ordered cosmos back into a world of chaos. 
But the difference is, is that one group longed to dwell amongst that chaos and continue to manifest that chaos through sin, whilst the other group longed to see God's perfect order re-established upon his creation. They've died to the sin that stained it in the first place. Revelation continues to make it clear that Christ is not simply a prophet or an angel or just some heavenly being or even just a son of God as people like the Jehovah's Witnesses would have us believe. He is God himself. In this verse 15, what begins as plural, says the Lord and his Christ, immediately becomes a singular verb, he will reign. The plural becomes singular. The identification of the one who sits on the throne is aligned with the lamb who shares his throne. Two parts of the Godhead. And then in contrast to the overzealous claims of Rome to be the eternal city, we read here that it is God's own kingdom that is the forever kingdom. Truly the one that will reign eternally. And then in verse 16 we are taken back to the scene of worship that we saw in chapters 4 and 5 where we read of the 24 elders. Hopefully you remember the 24 elders standing around worshipping God around the throne. However, there's a slight but important difference between their praise there and here in chapter 11. Can anyone see what it is? I'll give you a clue. It's in verse 17. And I'll see the difference between their worship back in that chapter, um, was it chapter uh, four? And, yeah, chapter four it was in, um, and chapter eleven. It's not that. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Chapter four, verse eight says this, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Day and night never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And is to come. What does it say in verse 17 of chapter 11? Who is and who was. There is no is to come, is there? Why is that? Well, it's because when we get to this point, he's already come. His full reign over the entire cosmos has begun. It tells us as much in this verse. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. This confirms what we've been saying all along, that the book of Revelation is not a chronological account of how the end of the world will come about, but is instead the depiction of the variety of angles, all viewing the same thing. God's redemptive purposes and plans for his creation. How God is finally and fully going to deal with the chaos and the corruption that has destroyed his Eden. How he will bring heaven and earth together once more and for all eternity. If I haven't made it clear enough by now, it is not a story about the end of the world. God is not planning on destroying his beautiful cosmos, but renewing it, redeeming it, resurrecting it. As I said last time, we are taken to the end of the story whilst only halfway through the book. But as we will see, the details of the end of the story will be filled out more and more thoroughly and from different perspectives as we journey through chapters 12 to 22. The whole of creation, not just mankind, is involved throughout this book of Revelation. We have seen how God allows nature itself to be part of his judgment in the sounding of the trumpets. And now we have seen the four creatures around the throne in chapter 4 who represent the whole animal world and in their worship of their creator. 
The reason behind their worship and the worship of the 24 elders in chapter 4 is found in verse 11 of that chapter. Worthy of you, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. And here comes a reason, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy of this worship because he is the creator God, the founder and sustainer of all life in the cosmos, whether animal or plant or whatever it is. The importance of the rest of creation to God is revealed again in chapter 5, where we see the ever-growing crowd who are worshipping around the throne are only completed when they are joined by every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea. Again, there is very little to suggest that God has it in its sights to wipe out the rest of creation and just take us off to somewhere special to live with him forever, condemning the wonder of the world to destruction. Instead, the language is very much saying that the direction of travel of the kingdom of God is from heaven to earth, not the other way around. This is more fully developed as we get to chapter 21, when the movement of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, where the prayers of Jesus, his disciples, and millions of his followers are answered as his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. When we read the nations raging in verse 18, we find an echo of Psalm 2, where if you turn to it, you'll find in the opening verse of those words, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? These words again express the rebellion of humanity against God's rule, how mankind has railed against God's sovereignty over their lives ever since the garden. Sometimes that has looked like individuals demonstrating their own rebellion by seeking their own gratification and wants, over and above God's direction to love one another and worship him through their whole lives. And sometimes it's in the form of whole kingdoms rising up under the worship of pagan idols, whether that's ancient gods and goddesses or more modern-day incarnations of idols. However it looks, its results are the same. Injustice, poverty, discrimination, inequality, and ultimately the opposite purpose of God's intention for his cosmos. The second verse of Psalm 2 provides John with the phrases, the Lord in his Christ. It says the Lord in his anointed. Christ means anointed one, as well as the kings of the earth. But it also goes on to talk of God's wrath that John speaks of in verse 18. John basically sums up this psalm in these couple of verses in chapter 11 and demonstrates how it is fulfilled in that moment. The writer of this psalm saw how humankind rebelled against their creator, but he knew that God would one day deal with that rebellion. Well, John is saying, now is that time. In fact, that's exactly what he says. He says, the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints. The word that John uses here for time is the Greek word kairos, rather than the Greek word chronos. Now, chronos refers to a specific time. Like I would say, the chronos is... 10 to 12, nearly. Whereas kairos refers to an opportune moment or a season. So, for example, let's say I'd experienced a tragedy in my life that had overshadowed me for some time. I could hopefully get to a point where I could say that it was the right kairos for me to move on with my life. Does that make sense? So it's not referring to an exact moment in time, but rather the right time. 
The ancient Greeks saw the two different types of time in this way. Kronos was measured and counted, whereas Kairos was lived and experienced. So what John is saying is that now God is finally and fully reigning. This is the moment, the right time, the Kairos moment, for his just judgment of the dead. This includes rewarding God's faithful people in the fulfilment of the promises that we read about all through the seven letters of chapters 2 and 3. This is when the conquerors receive their metaphorical crowns and white robes. He says, all those who fear God's name, both great and small, will be rewarded. That term, great and small, is used to show that anybody, whether rich or poor, whether higher standing in society or looked down upon, anybody can respond to God's message of rescue. And those who do, and those who faithfully hold on to that message, will be rewarded at this right moment. When the king takes his throne over his reclaimed kingdom, he will reward those who have journeyed with him to this point. But for those who have fought against his rule, only punishment awaits. And this is something that we'll get into more detail throughout the book, and particularly in chapter 20. But for now, all we are told is that along with the rewarding of his servants, this Kairos moment is also the time for the destruction of the destroyers of the earth, or those who destroy the earth. Now, it's that John doesn't say that it's a time for the destruction of those who destroy other people. He's not limiting the effects of sinful behaviour to being something that only impacts upon humanity. Instead, it is those who destroy the earth that will face their own destruction. In other words, again, we see that God is concerned and committed to the whole created order. Remember that before we saw the rainbow around the throne to remind us of his promise to Noah not to destroy the earth again. As we have seen time and time again, as we've worked our way through the first half of this book, God's purpose for the world is redemption and renewal, not destruction. And he can't be any clearer here. Why would he punish those who destroy the earth if he's about to do the same thing himself? So what does that say to us today? Well, I've heard many Christians scoff at the activities and the passion of those who promote the care of creation. Now, it's usually a misreading of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, that calls people to say, what's the point in looking after the planet if God's going to destroy it anyway? Well, we've already seen, I think pretty clearly, that God isn't going to destroy the world. The language that Peter uses when he says about the earth being destroyed by fire in that chapter is harking back to the language of the prophets. He used fire as an image of purification. The picture of God burning up the world by fire is very much what we are reading here about in Revelation. A time, a kairos moment, when God will purify, make new all things. When all evil and its effects are done away with forever. Not when he will wipe it all out. When we think back to the Old Testament, as John does constantly in this book, we see the story of God's people Israel. And the one thing that is very clear throughout the story is how his people are inextricably linked to the land. From Adam and Eve, who are told to be stewards, caretakers of the land, to the promise of a special piece of land to the Israelite people. From their eventual entry into that fertile land and their exiles from it. In the books of Exodus and Leviticus, we come across the Shemitah laws, or the laws of the Sabbath year. In the same way that human beings are in need of one day of rest every seven, God made it clear that the land was in need of one year of rest in every seven. 
In fact, if you look at the passage of Leviticus 25, verses 2 to 7, where God ordains the Sabbath year, the text is written in a very specific way to make it clear where the focus of God's intent lies. You may remember before that we have looked at something called chiastic structure, and it's a long word for a term, uh, of difficult biblical passages. But basically what it means is a, it's a passage that parallels itself throughout and has usually a key point right in the middle of it. So I'll give you a basic example. Say we had a five-verse passage. Verse 1 would mirror verse 5. Verse 2 would mirror verse 4. And then verse 3, right in the middle, would be the main point. When you know it and you see it in the Bible, it's everywhere. We find it all over it. And we often miss out the emphasis of a passage because, particularly in our English kind of language, we're used to finding the main point at the end of a passage. Well, here in Leviticus 25, we see in this structure um, that it's put together in such a clear way that the land is the focus. I'm not going to go through all that now, but the emphasis of this passage regarding the sabbatical year is on the need for the land to have a period of rest. God is concerned for his world. That's what he's telling us. So much so that failure to adhere to these laws was considered a sin and a moral offence to God. And the consequences of such sin are seen throughout in other parts of Scripture. Even the exile to Babylon is blamed on Israel's failure to care for the land in 2 Chronicles and explains that only now that Israel has been banished from the land is that land finally enjoying its Sabbath rest. The fact that the earth is described as being full of his glory in Isaiah 6.3 and that scripture such as Psalm 148 reveals how the earth exists for the praise and glory of its creator God tells us what we need to know. The earth is not just second, some second thought to God, some simply a place for us to inhabit and do what we want with. It's all part of his glory. It exists to serve him for the same reason that we exist, to worship him. Yes, we are a special part of creation. We are unique in that we are made in his image. But that doesn't mean that the rest of his wonderful creation is meaningless to him. We often talk about injustice for human beings as Christians, don't we? Well, what is injustice for humans? Well, I'd say it can be described as undermining a human being's purpose and vocation as given to them by God. It's preventing a human being from being all that they can be. When injustices are carried out on a person, they are prevented from flourishing as the being that they were created to be. So then surely the same can be said about the world. Whenever we act in a way that prevents the earth from flourishing as it was intended to do, when we cause the destruction of natural habitats, when we cause the pollution of seas and rivers, when we contribute to the melting of ice caps through global warming, we are surely guilty of carrying out the same sort of injustice. Like the Gentiles, remember in the beginning of this chapter, the Gentiles who trample over the holy city at the beginning of chapter 11, we are guilty of trampling on the goodness of God's creation. The Bible is very clear about the ownership of this planet. I mean, the whole Bible starts by telling us this information. Genesis 1, verse 1, literally the first verse in the Bible, tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. Not you, not me, God. Psalm 24, verse 1, then goes on to say, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God is both creator and owner of this world. That should tell us something. It's not ours. We are merely visitors on another person's property. And Leviticus 25, 23 says that we are only foreigners and strangers in this land. 
We therefore are surely to treat the land, the world we live on, as a gift, not a possession. The fact that God has entrusted it to us should make us treat it with utmost care, not as something to be thrown away, to be discarded. Now, last week I was able to spend a couple of days away in Paris with my eldest Ethan for his 21st birthday. And on the day we came home, we spent some time walking around the Musée d'Orsay. Um, it's the other museum, not the Louvre, um, in Paris. And it's, got, it's a home to some of the most famous paintings in the world. The museum don't own a majority of those paintings. They are loaned to them for safekeeping and for the many millions of visitors to enjoy. Now, do you think the museum curators just leave these wonderful pieces of art lying around on the floor gathering dust? No, of course not. Instead, they are placed in temperature and humidity-controlled rooms with glass over them to protect them. They are treated with the utmost care that they deserve. Put it another way, let's say I had a brand new car, maybe a Lexus or something, um, I don't, I've got a beaten up old galaxy out there. But let's say I did. If I lent you that card, would you return it to me covered in scratches and dents and with mud all over the seats? No, of course you wouldn't. You would do everything you could to return it in the same perfect condition that I lent it to you in the first place, wouldn't you? Then why is it that we feel that we can treat God's earth with a complete lack of respect? Hand back the Rolls Royce of a planet as a clapped out, beaten up, broken down wreck. I would say that the Bible is clear about God's relationship with the earth he created it, he loves it, he has plans for it he wants it to be cared for he wants it to flourish and like the work of the gospel he wants to use us to accomplish those things that's why he made us stewards of creation right back at the garden we are made in God's image and if God is the creator and owner of this planet then we have been given authority and responsibility for the rest of creation, and to manage it in the same way that God himself would. We are responsible for creating injustice when we diminish the earth's ability to fulfil its God-given purpose for our own inattentive, greedy or excessive lifestyles. And it might feel that our own small changes are just a tiny drop in an ocean compared to the impact of massive corporations and governments But in the same way that Israel was to be the model for a redeemed creation, I would say that we too need to be a model of creation care for the rest of the world to follow. And what we see in chapter 11 of Revelation is a stark warning to those who fail to do so, to those who are responsible for destroying the earth. The final verse of chapter 11 presents an image of God's temple in heaven being opened with the Ark of the Covenant, which has been missing ever since the Babylonian destruction of the temple, being present. This is an image of God's presence finally being revealed to the world. The God who once walked with Adam and Eve, returning to dwell with humankind and walk amongst his garden once more. But why does the Ark of the Covenant make an appearance here? It seems to just come out of nowhere. Well, I think it's because of what it represents. What was the Ark for? Well, it contained the two tablets and other objects, which all represented the covenant promises of God and of his people. Its appearance here seems to signify that God has been true to his covenant promises, that he said what he's doing what he said he would do. He has finally done it. He has taken his power, he's begun to reign. He will reward those who have also kept their covenant with him to lead holy lives. 
The chapter and this first half of the book ends with another allusion back to the Exodus theme that we've seen throughout Revelation. The lightning, the rumblings, the thunder, the howl, they remind us of the appearance of God at Mount Sinai. Again, emphasising God's covenant promises. He is doing what he said he would always do. But this also informs us that John's vision is about to shift focus once more. Whenever we see the lightning or the thunder or these kind of things in this book, it's when there's a change in the vision. What we have to come will take us through the story from a different angle as God reveals more of his ultimate plan for the rescue, redemption and resurrection of his people and his creation. And as we've seen this morning, that applies to the whole of his creation. God has created a breathtakingly beautiful world that when we stop and consider its intricacies, its perfection, its wonder, we cannot help but see God himself. But we also cannot help but see its suffering at our hands. As the Apostle Paul also wrote, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Even at Paul's time, he was able to see the effects of man's sinful behaviour on the planet around him. How much more is it visible now? It's time that we took our responsibility and God-given occupation as stewards of his creation very seriously. Let's get any idea that God doesn't care what happens to this planet out of his heads. The Bible is thoroughly clear that that is just not true. And let's get back to work being the caretakers of this beautiful place that God has been gracious enough to entrust us with.